Welcome you to our assembly. Uh, Brother Henley mentioned uh, Sierra Leone and the trip that's coming up. And the congregation here uh, aware of that, and of course I'm very aware, especially it's only a week away, and preparations uh, sort of intensified for that. Uh, I thought it might be uh, of encouragement to you to know that uh, Steve and Al and I are not the only ones who are preparing uh, for what we're doing. Uh, these are some pictures that were sent by Christian Asgell, who is an elder of the congregation at Priscilla Street in Freetown, Sierra Leone, where we will be uh, stationed and where we'll be speaking. Uh, and they put up banners all over town uh, looking forward to our coming and uh, advertising uh, the coming of the meeting. And these are some of the banners they sent some pictures of uh, where we'll be having morning sessions and evening sessions. The location that's there uh, and uh, this particular theme in Christ alone this is uh, these av- these particular advertisements are for uh, as I mentioned the morning and the evening session uh, at the church building and in the hall that's close to the church building and they put in they put up not only banners but individual flyers around town to invite people to come to hear us uh, to hear the word of God and hear the gospel this is a picture of the uh, we mentioned that we've also able to got to be able to speak at the college, the local college there, uh, in the class session, uh, where there will be a much larger venue. And this is a picture of the class uh, that's being taught at the, uh, this is not the figure of the Bible class, I don't think, but the class uh, room where the, uh, the class is taking place, where the Lord willing will be speaking on uh, Thursday and Friday and then Monday, and you can sort of see the uh, the number of people that are able to gather in that place. So that's pretty exciting for me, at least, to know that we're going to have that venue open to us um, and that uh, we're not going to buy a bus. <laughs> but, uh, that's the first part of my lesson. But uh, this is exciting to me to know that we are uh, going to have uh, the opportunity to speak before so many people and, and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's uh, because of your willingness to support that uh, and uh, to... Uh, to pray for us as we go, and I appreciate that that very, very much. I want to share with you some things that we're going to be talking about in Sierra Leone, as I've been doing on occasion in the last couple of weeks. Uh, my brother uh, Mike and I sometimes do things together, and that's always sort of a sketchy thing. I have Mike's one of my three brothers, and when we have, it seems like whenever we get together, um, that uh, sometimes things go wrong. We call it the Schmidt factor, and we try to avoid being in the same place at the same time all the time. But uh, we were together at a, uh, at a Miami Hurricanes game last week and uh, went to watch the game. And as we were there, we were reminiscing about several years ago, back when I lived in Ohio, I was here on vacation. I think it was, when I was, I was several years ago anyway. And we were both younger. And we decided to go to uh, a Miami Dolphins game together. Uh, and rather than fight the traffic and, uh, uh, and uh, at the stadium at that time, uh, was sort of downtown, but it wasn't Joe Robbie, it was the stadium, maybe Orange Bowl where they played, and it was not the best place in town, and there was no place to park. We decided we were going to take the bus. That was a good place to get there, a good way to get there. You just take, you drive your car to a parking lot, get on a bus, the bus takes you, brings you back to your car when the game is over. And so we did that, my brother Dan and my brother Mike and I. We got on the bus, and we went to the ball game. And all, we were pretty excited about the ball game. I think they won anyway on the way back. We weren't paying a whole lot of attention. We just got on the bus to come back to our car. And we rode, and we rode, and we rode. And finally, after we'd been riding for a long, long time, and we were no, we had no idea where we were, and everybody else but us was getting off the bus, the bus driver asked us, where are you guys going? And we told him, we showed him our ticket, I suppose it was, and told him where we were. He says, uh, you got on the wrong bus. 
So this bus is, is not even close to where your car is. So after we were the last ones on the bus, there wasn't anybody who graciously took us back uh, on the other side of town to where our car really was. Uh, where do you want to go? If you want to get someplace, then it's very important that you try to get on the bus that's going to take you there or that you have some idea of how to arrive. Uh, and I think that that's a, an important perspective, particularly when we try to look at that from the spiritual perspective. If you really want to go to heaven, if you want to get to God, uh, then there's a way to get there. But not every way gets there. And you can't, you see, take the attitude that it doesn't really matter. And that's what we're going to address a little bit. But it, that's difficult today because it's real easy in our world to be confused about that. You think about how easy it is for someone who doesn't know much about the scriptures or maybe anything about the scriptures, who wants to come to God and be right before God and has a yearning for that, to step outside their door and look around and try to figure out where should they go to get the right answers? Where should they go so that they can be pleasing to God? What church should they go to? What particular teacher should they listen to? What religion should they ascribe to? Because there are a whole lot of individuals, you see, that are practicing a whole lot of stuff in the name of religion. In fact, most of the world practices some form of religion. That is, they serve or worship something that's important in their lives or they consider to be, you see, God or the evidence of God. And some of them practice religion for, towards the true God, though they may do it in a way that God does not design. And there are some, you see, who, practice, who even serve false gods. And there are individuals even who declare there is no God, who in essence have erected a religion around themselves and they serve themselves, or they serve society and secularism. So the idea of trying to get to God, you see, though it's a prevalent idea, there's very little consensus in the world in which we live on how that's to be accomplished. So how are we to know? How can we come to a consensus and do it in our own minds about how we should get to God? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning in our lesson that Jesus is the way. That as much as religious confusion is out there, and as difficult as it could be for someone to navigate through all the religions of the world and all the, all the teachings of different denominational bodies, that when you come right down to what the Bible says, that Jesus proclaims to be not one of the many ways, but Jesus proclaims to be the way. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, that's an intriguing interchange, is it not? You're going away, Lord. We don't know where you're going. I am the way, the truth, and the life. How can we know the way? I am the way. So there's a sense in which Jesus' words here are a really good place to start if we're serious about trying to find our way through the maze of religious confusion today and get to God. Because Jesus claims to be, before his own disciples, the way to God. He claims to be able to show us the way to get to God, to go where he is, 
Now, do you believe what Jesus says? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. you believe what Jesus says? If, if you believe what Jesus says, then you must also recognize the implications that come along with that statement. What does it really mean to believe that Jesus is the way to God? Well, I want to suggest a couple of things. One is that when Jesus made this statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he was speaking objectively. And by that I mean that he was saying that this was true, not for just some time, and not for just this time, but that he has always been the way and always will be the way to God. That when he said, I am the way, he was speaking truth, as truth always is objectively true for all time. That it's not subject to change, it's not subject to revision, that there's nothing to be added to it or taken away from it. When Jesus says, I am the way, that's exactly what he means. There's nothing that happened that's broadened the scope of that statement since Jesus made it. There's no cultural thing that's happened no diversity in society, no expanding of our own understanding of the world that we live in, nor the practices of men in religion that have changed the fact that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is still the only way to God. He also spoke exclusively. And by that we mean, when Jesus said, I am the way, he was saying, I am the only way to God. Until I put my trust in Jesus and obey his commands and I'm cleansed by his blood, I cannot be saved. There is no other pathway. There is no the provision made for God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 that all spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus. Anything you desire to come from God in a spiritual sense is derived that through your relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Now, beginning with some of the necessary conclusions that flow from, I think, Jesus' objective and exclusive statement help us to understand how Jesus is the way out of religious confusion. How he leads us through understanding him and what he's done to come to the conclusion that Jesus is the way unto God and how to get there. A couple of thoughts along those lines. Jesus is the savior of the whole world. That's what the Bible teaches. In fact, the story of Jesus begins with that very perspective in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. The angel said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The very announcement of Jesus' birth, what was made known is that Jesus was unique. That Jesus' life and his work among men as the Savior of the world was for all the people. That surely he was the long-awaited messianic savior of the, of the Jewish people. But he also came to be the savior of all nations. And certainly that was incorporated in the promises that God made to Abraham millenniums before. That is through the seed of woman. It's through Jesus' life. It's through the Messiah of the son of David that all the nations of the world would be blessed. So there is no other savior than Jesus Christ. His death on the cross is the only sufficient payment for my sin. That if I'm really interested in being right before God, then I must be holy and without sin. I must find some way in which I can erase the guilt of what I've done and stand approved before God, sanctified before Him. Under the law of Moses, there were provisions for sanctification of God's people through the sacrifices of the Old Testament and the things that God laid down for the Israelites to do in the aspect of the giving of blood and the death of animals. And the, and the interaction with that which was clean and unclean. The process of making them understand that before you can come into my presence, you must be clean. You must be a holy people. You must deal with the problem of your sin. 
And yet, through all of those things that God gave to the law of Moses, there was no real answer given. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so the prophet said long ago, understanding that that's what God ultimately was making known to men, that Jesus would be the one through which that would come. And Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet spoke about Jesus and, and prophetically and said, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That passage was speaking about Jesus. We know that that's the very passage from which Philip spoke to the Ethiopian about his relationship to God that led him to the point of becoming a Christian, being obedient to the gospel. And what Isaiah was saying is that the weight of every sin was to be borne by Jesus alone on the cross. There weren't many different solutions. There was a single solution to sin. The prophet is expressing the absolute sufficiency of Jesus' blood. Not only would the blood of Jesus be all that God would provide, but it would be enough for every sin, no matter how heinous, in whatever age or culture it would take place. If a person was guilty of sin, the blood of Jesus Christ was the solution to that sin. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, John said late in the revelation of God, He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now that's an important statement. That's important truth. There is no way for you to work off, for me to work off my debt, or to satisfy the wrath of God. There is no religious ritual. There is no man who can absolve me of that guilt. I can't do away with it with any good deeds. The only thing that's enough to take away the guilt of my sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. That points us in the right direction. That certainly makes it less confusing about how I get rid of sin if I understand there is only one solution to sin, and that is Jesus Christ. I need to learn about him. I need to understand what he did and who he is because he is the solution for my sin. Now, salvation then comes through Christ, and it comes through Christ through the teachings of Jesus. That there is no way for an individual to come to God unless he is taught by God. And that Jesus came to be the Savior of the world through the process of enlightening the minds of men about not only what God was doing, but what God was going to do in our relationship before him. Now this, I think, is presented to us in scriptures in at least two ways. One is that teaching about teaching, the teaching of Jesus is the key to salvation in the sense of the message about Christ. The propositional truth on which my salvation, the mission of my sins rests, is that Jesus is the Son of God. His identity is at the root of that. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John chapter 8 and verse 24. You mean that there's something about Jesus that I absolutely must believe, that I must hold on to, that I cannot reject? That his identity is at the center of all of this. And Jesus himself said that. Jesus claimed to be God. And there is no middle ground on that. Either he was divine or he was not. If Jesus was not whom he claimed to be, if he was not God, if he was not the only begotten, if he didn't come down from heaven, if he was just a prophet or if he was just a teacher, then he was also a fraud and a liar. Because that's what he said about himself. So there's no middle ground here. The apostles proclaimed the message about Jesus in clear and unequivocal terms. That Jesus died on a physical cross and that he raised from the dead on the third day, that his body came out of that grave, and that he ascended to the right hand of God, that the same Jesus who walked the streets of Galilee in a physical body was now in heaven before God, and that before that he, he was with the Father in heaven before he came to this earth as fully divine. 
He ascended to the right hand of God, far above all rule, above all authority. And when the apostles made known that message about Jesus, he called them to repent of their sins based on the authority of Jesus Christ. They called on individuals to be baptized for the remission of their sins based upon the authority of Jesus Christ. If he had risen from the dead, if he was at the right hand of God, then he had the prerogative to call all men to obedience. And that's precisely what the apostles told them to do. When Peter raised the, uh, made the lame man walk in Acts chapter 4, and the, and the religious leader says, how did you do this? By what authority did you do this? Peter immediately went back to the authority of Jesus Christ as the foundation of his teaching. And he said in the context of that, this wasn't about us, this is about Jesus. And there is no other name given among men in which men, you and I can be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. So those who responded became disciples of Jesus. They, were, they did not join a religious organization. They did, not, they did not become disciples or adherents to a human creed. They became disciples of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 11, we looked at this verse not too long ago in the, in the context of uh, the early church. In Acts chapter 11, there were some from Jerusalem, from the Jerusalem church, who were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, this is verse 20, who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, or the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. So the gospel began to spread out from Jerusalem, and some of those Christians from Jerusalem, you see, went north to Antioch, and they began to preach, teach among those who were the Greeks as well. And notice what they preached. They preached the Lord, or the Master Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was through them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. That's a definitive statement, a description of what it means to be a Christian, what it meant to be a Christian in the first century, to be converted to a disciple and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, to know who he was and that he was the one who was on the throne. He is king. There's also the message from Jesus. By this we mean that becoming a Christian in the first century relied upon an individual following Jesus and listening to everything and obeying everything that Jesus had revealed. When many turned away from Jesus and his, and his teaching in John chapter 6, when they realized that he was not his intentions were not to feed them physical food, Jesus turned to the apostles themselves and asked them, Would you also go away? And Peter's response is, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now don't miss that. Peter said, you have the words of eternal life. That what Jesus taught was at the very heart and the center of how he would be the savior of the world. How you and I would gain eternal life is through the words that he would speak. On the night he would betray, Jesus promised his apostles that he would spend the Holy Spirit to them. He was not going to leave them as orphans or leave them desolate or abandon them. That he would send the Holy Spirit, also referred to as the comforter in that text. And the Holy Spirit would come to them after he left them. And that Holy Spirit would teach them and guide them into all truth. John chapter 16 and verse 13. Now, let me ask you a question. If the inspired message of Jesus' apostles... What Jesus gave to the apostles and commissioned them to preach unto all the world that you and I have in Scripture today, if that is all true, is that enough? Do I need to go anyplace else and find something else? Is there something to be added to that? Is there an appendum to what the, what the Holy Spirit gave to the apostles to reveal to the world in the first century? You see, that's pretty simple, isn't it? That erases a lot of the confusion out there today about whether or not I ought to follow this particular teaching or follow the teaching of this particular religion. Jesus said that he would reveal to the apostles all truth and that he was the way unto salvation. 
And that Peter said that Jesus' words were the words that were for eternal life. So understanding that clears the air and helps me find my way to God. I don't need to expect another. He alone fulfills and consummates all the words of the Old Testament prophet. He is the, alone is the perfection of the foreshadowing of the types of the old law, the law of Moses. He alone is my high priest. He alone is my king. He alone is the final prophet from God. If I look to Jesus, all of these other things fall into place. And there is no need for any of the other things that have come through the teachings or traditions of men. I don't need to give attention to any message that arrived after the words of the apostles. I don't need to become a disciple of anyone who claimed to be from God that came after Jesus Christ as the Savior of Jesus Christ. There are no further revelations to confuse me. No traditions of men, you see, should get in my way. That Jesus is the way and erases the religious confusion around us when we understand what he actually taught about himself. Jude urged Christians of the first century to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Delivered by whom? By Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Not by the teachings and traditions of men, not by some religious organization. The apostolic message of the gospel of Jesus Christ was where foundation where salvation would be found. And so Peter makes the same point in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue. Pretty simple, isn't it? It's not very confusing when we understand what the Bible teaches about Jesus, what Jesus revealed about himself, and whether or not we believe that Jesus is the way. There are a lot of folks in religion who will aspire to believe in Jesus' statement that he was the way. And they will say that Jesus was a great prophet, that Jesus was a great man, that Jesus had teachings that can enlighten us and make our life better. But they don't understand the implications of that and are still confused to the point that they believe that there are a lot of different paths a person can take to get to God. Another element of this, another way for us to see that Jesus clears away religious confusion today is to recognize that the scriptures teach things about his church or his body. And what the Bible reveals is that those who are saved by Jesus are the one body of Jesus. That the process of salvation is a process of unification of God's people. That the way God saves us simplifies our salvation to understand that there's only one body of Jesus Christ. And certainly we recognize that that's not what we see around us today. One of the obvious elements of religious confusion and division is that there are so many different churches that exist today. And those churches are not the same. They teach different doctrines, very different fundamental doctrines about who God is and about how you serve God and how a person worships God and what's the responsibility and what will provide for us in, yet, in the days that are yet to come. Now, I think what we recognize is just as obvious as it is is that we live in a divided, denomination, denominated religious world today is the fact that in the first century, there was only one church. Among those who would be very adamant to try to support a denominated religious world is the universal agreement that it wasn't like that in the first century. There's no one that's going to say, oh yes, look at the New Testament, look at all the different denominational bodies that existed. What we recognize about what the Bible teaches, about the history of the first century church, is that it was an undenominated body. It was a single church. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus, Peter makes a very profound and right confession 
to Jesus when he says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded and said, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Jesus promised to build his church. There is only one church or assembly, and that's what that word means there. It means assembly. There is only one assembly or people that belong to him, that were built by him, that are his. Now, if that's true, and certainly it's difficult for us to come to any other conclusion, either looking at biblical history or looking at what Jesus says about his intention to build the church, if that's true, then how can these people can be identified? How can we scrub away some of the confusion and try to get to understanding who the people of God are? When the apostles exercise their commission, just as described in Luke Matthew chapter 16, back there when Jesus first promised they would build his church, he says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. When the apostles exercise that prerogative and their commission for the very first time, they preach the truth that Peter just confessed. They preach that Jesus was both Lord and Christ. In Acts chapter 2, and familiar with these familiar with these passages in Acts chapter 2, notice the sequence. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this, that this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. The idea here, you see, is that uh, is that Jesus was exactly who he said that he was, and that he rose from the third on the third uh, on the uh, on the uh, rose from the dead on the third day, and he ascended to the Father. And when the Holy Spirit appeared to the apostles on the first uh, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, that was prima facie evidence that Jesus was exactly who he said that he was. And they then began to preach that message. And notice the sequence: after they preached the message, you see that you, that this is the person you have crucified. crucified Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins that you you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, you go to Acts chapter 2, and you see what happens here. Preaching of the gospel, the apostolic commission being fulfilled, and the appearance of the Holy Spirit. And you look at what happens here, and you think, can, I, can you find God's people here? You look at what happens here. Who, who are the Christians? Who are these people? Well... In verse 47, the text says this, And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. It's not hard to identify the Church of Christ here, is it? It's not some religious organization that traces itself back to some movement. It's not born through some restoration process of men. It's born through the preaching of the gospel. The text identifies those who become God's people as those who gladly receive the words of the apostles. Those who gladly received the word were baptized and they repented of their sins. And when they repented of their sins and they were baptized, the Lord added them together. Who was added together? All those who were being saved. There's the church right there. You see, it's not hard to identify in that passage, is it? The church of Christ, all those individuals who were saved. 
They were the church belonging to Christ. The church that he built through apostolic teaching. What denomination do they belong to? Well, that's a silly question, David. There's no denominations here. There's no process by which they became a part of a religious institution or a sect. So the church here in Acts chapter 2 was not the product of human endeavor. It wasn't a denomination or a sect or part of anything else. Now what's being described here, of course, is the gospel preached for the first time. So what we see in Jerusalem is not only a picture of the church, church universally or all the saved on earth at any time, but also the, the beginning of a church in, individually or locally in the sense that this is the church later on to be identified as the church that's in Jerusalem, a congregation of God's people. But understand that what arrives here is the body of Christ. It's comprised of individual followers of Christ alone, saved by the blood of Jesus alone, united only by the teachings of Jesus Christ and no other doctrine or no other creed. It was the church of Christ, right? You see, that's how we have to start thinking and looking at the passage, understanding what the church of Christ is from the standpoint of how the Bible describes it. Most people in religion today view the universal church that they read about in the Bible as the sum of all the different denominations who claim to follow Jesus. So the church is made up of groups and not individuals. So you have the Methodist church and the Baptist church and the Episcopalian church and all those folks out there that claim to have some relationship to God. They're a part of the church in the Bible. But the Bible doesn't agree with that view at all. So what the Bible teaches us is that the church, even from its very beginning, was a group of individual Christians and not congregations at all. That God didn't join religious institutions. He called individuals and added people to himself and to his body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, whereas the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, they've all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. And then he goes on in verse 27 and says, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So the body of Christ, the universal group of all the saved, is not made up of churches or religious groups, but of individuals who are saved by the blood of Jesus. And I can never lose sight of that, because that's the biblical identification description of God's people. Another description of this church is found in the words of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 when he spoke to the elders of, uh, of the church at Ephesus and he said to them, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Now they were shepherds of a local congregation. They were shepherds of a local flock. But Paul, what Paul was telling them there is that the people that you are to shepherd are the church, and the church are those individuals who've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. So the church is made up of all those who Jesus purchased with his blood. Who would that be? Would that be an institution? Would that be a group of people? Or would it be individuals that have been saved by the blood of Jesus through the obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Those who repented of their sins have been baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. So those words in that concept demand that we think of the church as being comprised of individuals that are saved by Jesus Christ. Not congregations are not a conglomeration of various denominations. So real quickly, denominational religion is contrary to the doctrine of Christ. It's contrary to the aspect of the call for unity among God's people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul called on the church at Corinth to solve the problem of their division among them by being perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. He says, don't go around saying, I'm a Paul and I'm a Cephas. Don't put your allegiance in men, but rather 
recognize that you are to be the undivided body of Christ together. Now, when Paul was pleading to the Corinthians that there be no divisions among them in verse 10, he was addressing a local congregation that they were not to be divided as a local congregation of God's people. But the principle that's, a, that, that's made known there as to why they should be taking care of their divisions among themselves is the principle that we're talking about even here this morning. And that is God did not intend for his church to be divided, to be divvied up into different groups, to call themselves after the names of men. How can we excuse the existence of denominationalism today and say that God doesn't care about that when he told the church at Corinth that very thing and asked them the question, is Christ divided in verse 13? What's the answer to that? Is Christ divided? No, he's not divided. Dominationalism strips away our freedom to follow Christ alone. The church is viewed as a divided entity and those who come to Christ are called, you see, to give allegiance to a creed, or to a group of individuals, or to the teachings of men. How do you become a member of this church? You've been asked that question from the standpoint of a local group, or even from the standpoint of a denominational association. How do you become a member of a denomination? Well, there's criteria that define that. There is an allegiance to give to a creed, or a church, or to a doctrine. And then there's the allegiance I have to give to Christ. Is there any such thing as a hyphenated Christian in the standpoint? Can a person identify themselves as a Baptist Christian, as a Methodist Christian, as a Presbyterian Christian, or as a Church of Christ Christian? Or does that very language betray our thinking about the nature of the Lord's Church? The denomination of religion strips away my freedom to follow Christ alone. It puts me in a position of having to give allegiance to a doctrine or to a group of men. When God never intended that, My allegiance is to Jesus alone. And if I'm going to call myself something, and I should call myself something, let it be that I call myself by the name of Christ and the name of Christ alone. Because that's the church that belongs to him. Now, real quickly, can we be Christians only without being members of a denomination? Is that possible today? Can we restore the New Testament church today, the church of Jesus Christ, in the world in which we live? Are we just to throw up our hands and look around at all the things that have all the diversity in religion and say, well, this must be what God wants. It's so prevalent among us. Who can sort it all out? It's so confusing. The answer to that question to Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Yes, we can restore New Testament Christianity in any society, in any place. But that doesn't happen through some type of congregational succession imagined or real. A church of Christ is not born because a church of Christ over here satellites and begins a church of Christ over here. It's not a congregation, again, it's not a succession or an association between congregations that defines the Lord's church. One church or congregation does not validate, validate the, the authenticity of another. It wasn't that confusing in the New Testament. How did churches populate the world in which we existed in the first century? How did Jesus build his church? so to speak. There were no popes for the first 600 years. There was no need to affirm a succession of popes back to the apostles. There were no denominations that could begin different groups of congregations like themselves someplace else. How then did did Jesus build his church? And how can the church today claim any solidarity with that church of the New Testament? Let me suggest that the credentials are found even in Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 8. In a parable where he talked about the spreading of the word of God and its diverse results, he said, the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Now, does that play out? 
that a true church of Christ is validated through the preaching of the word of God, through the seed being planted. The growth and reproduction of the church is dependent upon it, absolutely dependent upon the preaching of the word of God. In Acts chapter 8, it says at that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentations over him. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. It doesn't say they went everywhere establishing congregations like the one at Jerusalem. It doesn't talk about a succession of a religious organization. What the New Testament tells us there is that the church populated other places around the world because individuals preached the word of God. Because the seed was sown. Satan may have thought he could disrupt or somehow destroy the Jerusalem church through all the things that took place through the death of Stephen and the arrival of Saul of Tarsus. He may have viewed his ability to kill the apostles as a great victory toward destroying the church. But God's plan for the growth of the church was not dependent even upon the life of the apostles. It wasn't dependent upon the succession of any individual or any particular person. It was dependent upon the seed. Propagation of the word of, of the church of God was built was dependent upon whether or not the seed of the word of God would be planted there. And the seed was planted by individual Christians who preached the gospel. In Acts chapter 8, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. In Acts chapter 14, the church planting is too simple to miss in this particular event. Paul and Barnabas came to Iconium in Asia Minor. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 1, it says that Iconium, they entered together the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. What were they talking about? They were talking about Jesus. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. Trouble comes. And Satan once again arrives and tries to disrupt things. And what the disciples do? What's their response to that? Well, they stayed a little longer and preached a little more boldly. Well, what was the result of that? The church of Christ. Disciples were drawn and turned to the Lord. When a tempt was made both the Gentiles and Greeks, this is verse 5, when the tempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews, were their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. They run out of one town, they go to the next. And what do they do there? There's no institutional ribbing ceremony where they said, come, we're going to start a church. They preached the gospel, and individuals came to understand the gospel. While at Lystra, Paul heals a crippled man, as revered as the gods. That he was, they went from being, you see, persecuted and thrown out of the city to being revered as another place as gods. But even the healing and the miracle of the man was not the real issue. Paul had to change their minds about that and said, verse 15, We bring good news. This is good tidings about Jesus Christ. That you should turn away from these vain things and serve the living God. It called them to repent. In verse 15, in verse 19, but the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowd, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. You see a pattern here? 
They just keep preaching the gospel. And people keep turning to the Lord. And churches are built. Congregations of God's people. Preaching the same word. Sowing the same seed. Is it possible to just be a Christian today? Well, real quickly, a couple of closing questions. If you responded to the gospel message contained in the New Testament, just as the people of the New Testament, would you be a Christian? If you believed about Jesus Christ, what the New Testament, what the apostles taught, if you came to repent of your sins and turn away from what you've done in the past with a desire to serve God and produce righteousness, if you confessed that Jesus Christ was your Savior, was your Savior with boldness and authenticity, and you were baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins. If you did exactly what they did, what would you be? You'd be a Christian, wouldn't you? Would you be a member of a denomination? On what basis could you claim any allegiance to any particular human organization? However, aspiring it might be. And whose church would you be a member of? Would it not be the church that belongs to Christ? I want to suggest to you that that's not confusing at all. That's pretty simple, and in many ways, very enlightening. That God has provided for us a way to salvation through Jesus Christ, His Son. After you obey Christ through repentance and baptism, suddenly the Lord adds you to His universal body, His church, that belongs to Christ. You can join yourself to a local church of committed individuals who will work together for the cause of Christ. You can become a Christian without being a member of any denomination. You can serve God without any ties or allegiances to human traditions. And in the end, Jesus will lead you home because he is the way and the truth and the life. We do that by standing and saying.